Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelia will edify you. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelia are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to this episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. I'm super excited today to be to be discussing The Woman in the Window, a thriller novel and a thriller film by the same name. But before we do that, a couple of quick announcements. Reminder, we have a website, kmmamedia.com slash pages of popcorn podcast, where you can find all sorts of links and show notes and ways to support us as well as our entire back catalog. That's right. Every episode gets its own little blog post and we have the trailer. We have affiliate links in case you want to buy the book. You can support us that way. And we have all of our show notes and sources. I know (laughs) this episode, I can promise you, I think I have like 12 sources already going on, plus whatever Jennifer is going to send me. So it's a good place to, to, to see. And then the show notes are important because sometimes we make a reference to something, uh, a literary term or, or well, all sorts of things. And the show notes are where there's a little bit of an explanation for all of those things. So if you hear a term you don't know, chances are it's explained in our show notes. You can also pop in on our monthly pop-in and ask us directly, what the hell did you mean by that? That is so true. Our monthly pop-ins are the last Mondays of every month on Zoom at 7 p.m. Pacific time. And even though this month, the month of May, the merry, merry month of May, that is Memorial Day, we don't care. We'll still be here in our Zoom. There might be Zooming by the pool. I doubt it, actually. It'll be 7 o'clock at night. The kid probably needs to go to bed. I'll be home. I might still be damp from the pool. But we will be here at 7 o'clock p.m. And we'll be happy to hang out and talk to you at that point about anything that you want to talk about. The other way that you can talk to us. Send us an email at pagesofpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. That's right. And lastly, if you would like to support us, awesome. Thank you. Thank you in advance for that support. You can tell your friends, your neighbors, uh, if you are quarantining in your house or suffer from agoraphobia, signs on windows also work to inform your neighbors and friends about what they should be listening to. You can support us on Patreon at the $5 level, get the episodes right away, as well as a couple other little perks. You can buy us a coffee, which is a weird way of saying there's a donate button on the website. It's a thing. The other way is that you can review us and rate us on all the podcasting places. Share our social media content. KMMA Media is on Instagram. Pages and Popcorn Podcast is on Facebook. Technically on Twitter, but I really don't like Twitter. Twitter is intimidating to me. So I'm honest. I'll be honest. Twitter intimidates the heck out of me. But I do do try to check it occasionally. And me personally, you're more than welcome to reach out. I am also on Instagram at Kalia underscore Marie underscore M and at Twitter at at K Marie and of course, Facebook. So 
lots of ways to get involved, lots of ways to communicate. And boy, howdy, do we have an episode for you. Like I said at the top of the show, The Woman in the Window, thriller novel by American author A.J. Finn. We'll have lots to talk about him. It was published in January of 2018 and made into the 2021 American psychological thriller film directed by Joe Wright from a screenplay by Tracy Letts. We'll talk about him as well. But first, here is our book recap. Dr. Anna Fox suffers from agoraphobia due to a mysterious trauma and lives a reclusive life in her large home in New York City. She has recently separated from her husband, Ed, who has custody of their nine-year-old daughter, Olivia. However, they frequently talk on the phone. To pass the time, Anna spends her days drinking too much alcohol, playing online chess, communicating with other recluses through the Agora online forum, where she uses her background as a child psychologist to give advice and help other people who are dealing with their own traumas, as well as watching old movies, meeting with her shrink and her physical therapist, and she spends time spying on her neighbors, including the Russells, a family that moved in across the street. There's Ethan, the reserved and polite teenage son, Alistar, the controlling father, and Jane, who rescues Anna after she stumbles on her front porch trying to chase away some kids who are egging her house on Halloween. Jane seems super chill. They drink wine, play chess, and bond. Anna also has a tenant who lives in her basement. This is David. He does handyman things like fixing stuff and telling her that she needs other things fixed, like the skylight and whatnot. Anna likes him well enough, but doesn't really know him. She does know that he has the occasional overnight guest, but she has no real way to spy on him, so whatever, he doesn't matter. At one point, David does some work for the Russells, and Anna thinks she hears a scream from the house, but David says he didn't hear anything, and Ethan's frightened phone call is cut short. Anna's convinced that Alistar is a crap dad, maybe even abusive. One evening, when looking out the window, Anna witnesses Jane being stabbed and calls the police. The police don't seem to believe her because she's so very drunk. And so she faces her fear, tries to go outside to help Jane, but ends up collapsing in the yard. The police find her and get her medical treatment, but they, including Detective Little and Officer Norell, don't believe her about the murder. Alistair and Ethan also deny anything is amiss. Mother Jane is out of town, they say. And then eventually they introduce Anna and the cops to someone named Jane, a totally different woman than the woman that Anna had met and bonded with. Anna is freaked out and insists the woman claiming to be Jane is not Jane, but no one believes her. She self-medicates with booze and pills. She becomes convinced that Alistair killed Jane. She also has a one-night stand with David, and she instantly regrets it. But then, then she receives an anonymous email with a picture of herself sleeping, and she freaks out, understandably. She calls the police, but they think she sent it to herself as a way of getting attention. And then they drop the bomb slash fucked up tragic truth. Apparently, back in the foretime, she cheated on her husband. They told the daughter who was really upset, and then they were driving on a mountain road, and there was arguing, and then the lover was calling Anna, and then she looked away from the road to see the phone, and then they crashed, and both husband and daughter died slowly over the course of a few days in the snow while Anna helplessly watched. That is what triggered her agoraphobia and she has been imagining her conversations with them. Knowing her medications can cause hallucinations, the police theorize that Anna could have taken the picture and emailed it to herself. Anna realizes that the murder may have been a hallucination as well. 
And maybe the whole night and relationship with Jane, also just something in her brain to give her brain something to do. So she's really, really sad and super embarrassed. But wait, Anna finds a picture she's taken of Jane during their chess and booze girls night in and shows it to Ethan. He breaks down. He tells her the truth. Jane and Alistar are his adopted parents. And Katie, the woman that Anna assumed was Jane, the woman that she met and had wine with, that is his biological mother. Katie tracked his family down in order to see her son again, but her frequent unwanted visits led to an altercation with Mother Jane, which resulted in Katie being stabbed. Alistar and Jane hid the body and have lied to the police. Anna is so relieved that she isn't crazy. Now it is time to call the police, but Ethan convinces her. He'll talk to his parents. He'll tell them that it's best for them to turn themselves in. Ethan later sends a text confirming that he and his parents will be going to the police. But wait! That night, Anna realizes that Ethan mentioned something about her cat and its busted paw. Something he would have no way of knowing. How did he know about your paw? She asks her cat. Because I visit you at night, says Ethan. Ah! No joke. I was startled so bad I yelped and almost threw the book. Ahem. Anyway, it's climax time. Ethan has a weapon. He's going to come clean for real this time. He monologues. He confesses that he has psychopathic tendencies. He's been sneaking into her house at night to watch her. He's stalked other women as well. He reveals that he's the one who killed Katie because of his resentment about the abuse and the neglect that he faced as a child under her care and that his father knew but kept it a secret to protect him. Real Mother Jane has no idea. Realizing that he intends to kill her too, Anna flees. He pursues her to the roof where she pushes him through an old skylight to his death. Alistair is arrested as an accessory to Katie's murder and Anna slowly starts her life over again. The end. Movie recap. The plot starts off pretty much the same as the book. Child psychologist Anna Fox lives alone in Manhattan Brownstone apartment after becoming separated from her husband Edward. He lives away with their daughter Olivia, but she talks to them on a daily basis. Anna suffers from agoraphobia and her housebound state leads her to observe all of her neighbors from a second story window, including the Russell family who have recently moved in across the street. Anna takes a large number of medications and drinks alcohol daily. First, Ethan comes over, then the Halloween with the eggs and the rescue by Jane and then the bonding and... Okay, fine. Anna calls the cops one night when she thinks someone broke into her house, but nope, it's just David the tenant. False alarm, but good for a few startled moments. Then Anna witnesses Jane being stabbed to death in the living room. She contacts the police, but they don't believe her, claiming everyone in the family is fine. Alistair arrives along with Jane, who, to the shock of Anna, is a different woman from the one that she met. Naturally, Anna is upset and freaked out. She begins spying on the Russell family and then receives an anonymous email containing a photo of herself sleeping. She contacts the detectives again, who are soon joined by the Russells and David, where she has a nervous breakdown. Now it is revealed that Edward and Olivia are dead as a result of a car accident that Anna accidentally caused. She is now agoraphobic. As a result, her medication causes her to have hallucinations and conversations with people who are not really there. Anna apologizes to the Russell family, admits that she was wrong. She stops pursuing her suspicions and later records a video on her cell phone, planning to end her life by suicide by taking an overdose. Anna then discovers a photograph she took on her phone of her cat, and in the reflection of a wine glass is the original Jane, proving that she was real. Anna shows David the photo, and he confesses the original Jane she met is a woman actually named Katie, who's Ethan's birth mother. Katie had been stalking the Russell family, trying to get close to Ethan, hence why they had to move to Manhattan. David refuses to corroborate Katie's existence to prove Anna's story, and then he is suddenly attacked by 
by Ethan, who has been lurking in the apartment. Ethan reveals to Anna that he murdered Katie and is a budding serial killer, having also killed Alistair's secretary in Boston, and he says he intends to kill Anna as well. He has been letting himself into her apartment all week with a stolen key, and he was the one who took the photo of her sleeping. He offers to not kill her, but just to watch her die from her suicide, and Anna plays along before hitting him with a wine bottle and fleeing. She runs up the stairs to the roof where they fight graphically. He fucking stabs her in the face with a gardening claw thing in the motherfucking face. But eventually, Anna pushes Ethan through the skylight to his death. As Anna recovers in the hospital, Detective Little states that they've arrested Alistair and Jane for helping Ethan cover up Katie's murder. Little admits that he watched Anna's video, but then he hands her back her phone to allow her to delete it before she returns it as evidence. He sincerely apologizes to Anna for not believing her. Nine months later, Anna is now sober, and she says her last goodbye to the apartment and to her late family before she moves out, drives away, and gets on with her life. The end. Okay, quick question. Yes. Did you read this book back when it came out in 2018? I read it about a year ago. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. So not immediately when it came out. Had you read Gone Girl, The Woman in Cabin 10, Girl on the Train? There's like a bunch of these. You know what? In my notes for the longest time, I referred to this upcoming project of ours, this book and movie, as female protagonist in a box. (laughs) Because... I couldn't remember if it was woman or girl, train, window, car, box, cabin, whatever. Too many overlaps. Anyways, okay, so I did not read it back then. I read Girl on the Train, and for the longest time, thought that these were the same book. I was wrong, obviously. Then I saw that it had been adapted and was coming out on Netflix, and I was like, oh, we should do it. So here we are now doing it. Uh, it's crime, right? It's That's what you'd call this? It's cr- a thriller. Crime thriller. Yeah. Okay. Not, not my go-to genre. So before we really get into too much, because this isn't my genre, I can say I had thoughts and feelings as I read it, but I don't know how, I was going to say how valid they are because this isn't like my, my typical genre. Like I definitely was startled when the chapter ended with Ethan saying, because I watch you at night, like that startled me, literally startled me. Uh, I don't know well, if that's... You also have a tendency to have that kind of fear that somebody's watching you at night. Yes, I do. <laughs> that so, is, that yeah. is a fear I have. <laughs> that that hit, as I was reading it the second time for this podcast, I was like, oh, oh, I know somebody who, who has a fear of this. That'll be fun. <laughs> I was sitting on a couch next to my friend Cynthia and I yelped and tossed the book. And then I was like, my heart was pounding and I looked over at her and she was like, are you okay? <laughs> I was like, yes. And then I couldn't decide if I wanted to keep reading or not for a while. Like if I needed a break or if I just wanted to like keep pounding on through. But the whole point of this book is, seems to be to like keep you moving forward, to not really think about anything too much. And so, I, okay. So knowing that I read it with an uncritical eye, because I'm like, okay, I'm going to read this novel. And that I, I literally I told you before we started recording, I read it in one day. Basically, I had a full day where I didn't have anything I had to do except for sit around and drink coffee and read books. And so I read this book almost exclusively in one sitting. And I think that that colors my impression of it, because when I finished, I was like, ooh, you know, and then as I've thought about it more, 
I'm like, uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> so anyways, but then I wasn't sure what, if my impressions were fair, given that this isn't my genre. So I looked something up and this is in our show notes, but I want to read this little quote to you. The woman in the window is an updated variant of the locked room mystery, the reliably entertaining standby. The mystery, of course, plays by its own strict rules. Of all literary genres, it tends to be the most formulaic. Okay, so, okay, again, this is one of those things. If you if you read a lot of mysteries, you probably knew this. I don't read a lot of mysteries, so it didn't, it didn't catch on me, but here's the formula. Okay, uh, it presents a succession of episodes that both advance and befuddle the trajectory towards a solution which must be postponed until the very end of the novel. There are red herrings, false clues, false leads, false suspects. They all must be embedded in the narrative even as the villain hides in plain sight. To accomplish this sleight of hand, it helps us tell the story from the perspective of an individual who is intensely involved in the mystery without having the capacity to comprehend what is happening around her. The reader can thereby identify with the heroine and share in her increasing alarm and helplessness. Such straightforward genre works maintain an implicit contract between reader and author. Keep turning pages. Don't slow down to question improbabilities. It will all be explained in the final chapter, often by the villain to the protagonist who is guaranteed to survive. And as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, I did all those things. And I think if I had been a little bit more like self-aware for some reason, I started this book thinking it was going to be like a scary drama, not a thriller mystery. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, I read a thriller mystery a cozy mystery a couple weeks ago for my book review blog and it literally had all of those same things and it drove me up a wall and I really disliked it I saw the twists coming a mile away and I was super super frustrating and I was like am I just like really good at figuring shit out or is this a bad book and after now reading this book I can tell you I'm not that good at figuring things out that other book was just really bad <laughs> this one is better to me because I didn't figure it all out I figured some of it out but not all of it so anyways that's my general first impressions of the book do you have general first impressions of the book <laughs> There, there's just kind of certain expectations when you understand genre and I find genre breakers to be more interesting because of that but I don't mind a genre when you know what it is it's just you're, you're kind of buying into the thing if you want the romance oh my god will they get together of course they are that's the genre the other thing that you'll often find is the person that you least suspect the most helpful person they're always the main bad guy that's true in this as well. As a question then, why would anybody continue to read these? Because you would totally, like if you read enough thrillers and they all follow this formula, then what's, I mean, then you, you already kind of know what's going to happen, right? But it's more, well, that's what I mean about, you know, anything that's genre. If you know the genre, you'll, you'll know the beats, you know? So if you like romance, you know the beats. You have this, you have that. Uh, you, you have to have the break, then you have the stuff that happens hmm. which is basically plot that was stupid <laughs> the stuff that happens but you like the style of how it's done hmm. uh so some writers are really good at changing those twists or how they work a formula okay okay so yeah i'm not against formula writing to a certain extent i mean it's just fun entertainment it's the manner of which it's done like if you've read shakespeare and you've gone to a Shakespeare play, why would you go to another one? Because they'll maybe have a different interpretation. They'll have something that you haven't seen before. Yeah, bad example. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
Um, a normal yeah, person, you don't like Shakespeare. But uh, no, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. Um, I think I don't particularly like romance, and I think that you just kind of nailed it. It's not always just because I hate love. I mean, I do, but it's <laughs> no, just kidding. But it's it's more because the the formula is so laid out that it's it's not as interesting. Does that make sense? But now that you're saying that, that people enjoy it because they want this, they like the style and some writers write it better. I'm thinking, I like superhero movies and they basically have a very similar formula, right? You have your, your, your origin and then you have the first battle and then they, where you lose and then you have your motivational moment of whatever and then you have your last battle and then you win and then, you know, whatever. It's every episode of Supergirl is, is that. I like Law and Order. It's very formulaic. First this, then this. There's a red hairy da da da. So I can I can see it now. I thank you. That kind of does help explain. Yeah, there's a reason why DC films have generally been terrible, and Marvel just tends to knock it out of the park. And it's you know there's comedy in one. The the beats are different. You know they work. So yeah, that's that's pretty much why you would go for genre. Yeah, and I guess that it's very comforting if you know like it's gonna all get solved at the end and it's going to be a happy ending you know my kid won't watch something unless I can guarantee her a happy ending and I figured that was just because she's you know eight and a half but I I have a feeling that that's a thing that a lot of people feel in as they're not eight and a half and grown-up people that's why people read romance and thrillers like you know cozy mysteries are a thing because you know people enjoy them right okay so great does this do its job as as a thriller then as somebody who knows more about the genre than I do? Because to me, it totally did. It's it's kind of like, do you want to be stuck in this person's head for however long it takes you to read the book? Is she interesting <laughs> to be in that head? And so that's where I kind of put the line. Um, she has moments of being funny. I find her somewhat exasperating. She has her foibles, and so you could attach to that. Uh, and it, again, it's like, do you have the past that would help you empathize with her? You know, so when she's drinking in front of a cop, there I am going, okay, I get it stressful. And this is what you do when you're stressed. But my God, that's a really stupid thing to do for somebody who should be rather intelligent, Mm -hmm. supposedly. And so there are moments like that that kind of bother me. But it's it's um, your mileage may vary. I found her pretty believable in a lot of that kind of stuff, like that she did stupid things and didn't put things together as quickly you know a few of the things that I put together she didn't put together and so I I did found that a little bit you know I was like oh okay you're not perfect and you're obviously making bad choices because you're under the influence of your drugs and your alcohol and your trauma right that's like a pretty big trifecta yeah the trauma is um that is a really well done beat if we're going to talk about genre (sighs) dude okay I, I, I have to say, I didn't catch, I didn't clue in that they were dead until pretty much right before we were told that they were dead. Like I didn't pick up on that. So maybe that's just me not being able to pick up on that, but I totally didn't pick up on that in the book, in the movie. I felt it was whatever. We'll talk about the movie in a minute anyways. And then when it started to go into the detail about it, I was like, okay, this is a very long flashback. And then I was like immersed in it. And it was so tragic and it was, it, I won't say it was like long and drawn out because it wasn't, but it was, it was. You felt the time that she was watching her husband and daughter suffer and slowly die. And she said like her daughter wasn't actually dead when the helicopter came because she said 
mommy and there had been like this reoccurring theme early on where she wanted her daughter to still say mommy and her daughter was like growing up and out of that and you know your mileage will vary i have an eight and a half year old daughter who only calls me mommy when she's sad or scared like in the middle of the night i'm mommy you know um when she's like calling from the other room because she lost her pencil, I'm mom, right? It's, it's very different. But when she says mommy, like. Yeah, I can see you're getting. <laughs> trying not to that. cry. Uh, and the, yes. the worst of it is like the daughter's alive with the helicopters. You're, you're like hopeful. Mm-hmm. Oh, could she have made it that. And you know, from reading it that she didn't because right. this is the big reveal. But you can put yourself in her position as a mother. Oh, my daughter's still alive. The helicopter's here. We're going to make it and then still have. And, and just like being so trapped and so cold and, and helplessly watching someone you love die is just, I mean, it's awful. And, yeah, the levels of guilt that go on with this character. Oh, right. Because, you know, they were only on this trip because they wanted to give the daughter a happy memory before they talked about their divorce. And they're only getting divorced because she's had cheated on her husband. And we don't really understand the motivation for the cheating. I mean, because that's not really the point, which I appreciate. It wasn't, you know. And then the daughter, you know, was like upset. They, they The dad decided to go ahead and tell the daughter, early on the trip so then they leave so then they're they're you know driving and i have to tell you this is okay follow my tangent here my parents bless them took me to see indiana jones in the temple of doom when i was like three or four years old which bad call on them and there's this part in indiana jones temple of doom there's lots of scary parts but one of the scary parts is that they're in like this little cart and it's like ricketing down okay and it's really high up and for years, I blocked that movie out, but I had nightmares into my 20s about being on this little cart that's way up high and, and like being scared to death I was going to fall. And it wasn't until I actually saw the movie again in my 20s that I realized what those images had come from, but they'd morphed in my nightmares to be like much more expansive. To this day, you know, those freeway on ramps where you're like up really high and there's only like one layer or one layer, mm. one lane of you and you're up here and there's like cement on both sides and you're like her dude I can't I cannot like ask my husband I close my eyes and I I like make little fists with my hands I can't it's so scary to me so so them driving on this mountain road and I know that like something bad I'm just like this is not okay this book hit like a lot of Kalia's personal triggers is what I'm saying <laughs> driving in the snow is one of mine because I've done that before and it can be really scary Mm. I don't drive. I've never had that responsibility. And I'm, there are times when I'm really grateful that I've never had that responsibility. There's like this evil part of me that's like, well, if we all die, at least it won't be my fault. But in this case, like not only is she driving, so it's her fault, but also like they're there because of her. It was her fault. It's her fault. Oh, okay. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. That makes her break down when they're like, this is really her, you know, this is Jane Russell. And she just, says okay yeah I'm, I'm psychotic i'm hallucinating the gaslighting is is complete on that that really um hits pretty hard taking that into consideration all that guilt that she has and then the guilt of i've just ruined these these people's like the, their last couple of weeks by being a creep mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like i'm ruining another family i'm i'm causing trauma and like 
something that, and we'll talk about the differences, but there's a main theme in the book where she is on her agora network and she's giving people help and she's trying to help people with their own agoraphobia and their own psychosis and she has this recurring thing about like doing good helping people like she can't fix everybody's problems but she wants to help them so talking to them giving them tools and she feels like that's worthwhile and it's it's really good and it's profound and so like when she has the moment in the book where she realizes that she, or, you know, she's like at this point now where she's like, okay, I've been wrong this whole time. It really undermines that she had been trying to help. Like she had, that's what she wants to do with her life is help people, not hurt people. And I feel like it did a better job in the book of like kind of exploring that, mm. that dichotomy. Of, I kept reading the doctor is in is the doctor I sin. The doctor is in the doctor I sin. I sin as in I did something sinful. Oh, I didn't even catch that. Yeah, her username is the doctor is in the doctor I sin. Dude. Okay. <laughs> that's that's clever. That's more I don't clever. know if that was intentional, but yeah, I kept seeing that when I was reading. That's cool. See, this is why we do this podcast. Right there. <laughs> Very good. Very good catch. Yeah. So anyways, yeah, she's so she's horrified and and I I I was horrified along with her. And there are these moments where I don't know if you've had in your personal life where you're like, okay, you know what? Everybody says this is the thing. I guess that's the thing. I'll just fine, whatever. I give up. I'm tired of fighting the not thing. So I'm just going to accept the thing because there's really not a thing I can do about it. How many more times can I put the word thing in the sentence, Jennifer? Let's, let's count. You know what I mean about how you're just, sometimes you just get too tired to fight. And even if your brain is telling you this maybe isn't right, you're just emotionally exhausted. Well, there are, yeah, I've definitely had those times when I'm the one person in the room going, wait a second, no. And do you make, do you confront that? Because you're going to be confronting an entire room that's against you. Mm-hmm. Or do you just go, all right, um, maybe I should just keep my mouth shut and maybe I am wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. Yeah, that that questioning. Uh, The thing that really gets me is gaslighting Mm -hmm. because it's so like human memory is so fallible. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to say, oh, no, that didn't happen. You're like, wait a second. Wait, no, that that happened. I know that happened. I mean, and we forget everything. My daughter lost a water bottle in the dining room yesterday. It's been 24 hours. We don't know. Nobody's left the house, Jennifer. Like nothing has happened. And every, like it's not like it's terribly messy in there. She had it on the table while she was drinking at breakfast time. By lunchtime, it had disappeared. We don't know where it went. We've gone through every room in this house and the backyard for no particular reason. We can't find the stupid water bottle. Like none of us remember what happened to it. So yes, memory is fallible, like super fallible. And I think we think of it only in these big epic ways, like, oh, you know, this conversation didn't happen the way that I said it happened, or this crime didn't happen, or like the eyewitness is, you know, wrong or whatever. But man, we forget things all the time and we lose things because our brain isn't giving them that energy or that emphasis or whatever so it's so human yeah i've, I've said many times in discussion okay i don't remember that it doesn't mean that didn't happen mm-hmm. i just know that i'm fallible in that way yeah which is really hard to say especially when you're you know it's when you've got an identity wrapped up in something or you know it's part of an argument or you know and and when, when you feel like it matters you know i told you to get Half and half. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. I remember saying the words. Well, 
you didn't say the words, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Oi, oi. So yeah, the book definitely does a good job of that. The book does a couple things though that aren't great. Um, there's a word variety issue. The word bolt, B-O-L-T comes up an awful lot. Somebody bolts across the room. Somebody bolts over here, a, a shiver of fear bolted through my body. And I was like, okay, get at the source. Also the word pad, P-A-D. And maybe I'm sensitive now because I saw this thing on Facebook and it was like, list the things and phrases and books that you're tired of reading. And somebody wrote so-and-so padded across the room. And I was like, yes, man, yes, this book. And it said it a lot to the point where I started pointing it out every time to Cynthia, who was sitting next to me. Oh my God, someone just padded across the room again. And then we had this whole discussion about what that means. Doesn't that technically mean that you're barefoot? I mean, can you pad across the room if you've got shoes on? Because Jennifer, somebody fucking pads across the room in this book and he's wearing boots. Like there's been no discussion of him. No, being, no. Yeah. I, I think of it as barefoot and kind of on the, the balls of your feet. Balls of your feet. Yeah. Yeah. Like Because you're kind of like doing a cat and being quiet. Yes, it's like not quite a tiptoe, but it's like a gentle, careful walking. Yeah, dude, I think it gets overused. I think people just don't want to say walked anymore. Like walking is passe. Well, fuck you all, pedestrians rule. And padding is like a, a word that is being used to pad this book. <laughs> See what I did there? Yes. Yes, yes, that, I saw that. That's the quality <laughs> content people show up for. So I read Twilight at night when I couldn't sleep in a closet like literally in a closet because we were on vacation and I was trying not to annoy people. So I would go into our little hotel closet that had a light and sit there at night and read. And smirk came up so often and it ruined the word smirk. <laughs> I'm like, that's not what a smirk is. A smirk is kind of a, a sort of a mean sort of smile. It's not yeah. nice. He smirked at you. He, he's being an asshole. <laughs> yes. You know, tangentially, I read Fifty Shades of Grey, not in a closet, but the word mercurial gets used an awful lot in that book, and it has ruined that word for me. <laughs> you don't know what this word means, author. Okay. Okay, so let's see here. I had some actual real-time notes about this book. Oh, so there's a lot of old movie references in this book, mm. and... It, it, almost, it wasn't quite Ready Player One level of like, let me list all the old movies ever. But it, it, it definitely got to the point where I was like, yes, we get it. She watches old movies. She doesn't have to list them all. And I feel like it was trying to set a tone and like, so that then you're thinking about old movies so that then you would like put this kind of story in that same genre as some of those old movies, like the noir, you know, kind of genre and stuff, especially like the whole rear window thing, right? You're staring out your neighbors trapped inside, staring out, seeing a murder, blah, blah, blah. Very rear window, but like all the rest of them, you know, and if you haven't seen, if you haven't seen Rope, you might not get the why it's here and why it matters if you if you haven't seen Laura and so as somebody who has seen some of these but not all of these I kind of felt like the author was giving us either either he's giving us information that works on two levels and if you're lucky enough to get the second level good for you but it just kind of works for everybody on the first level but I also felt like he was kind of bragging a fact the fact that there's the second level there and only like true aficionados would get the second level. Aren't they special? I don't know. It bothered me. The fact that we had so many old movies link listed and not all of them are, were freaking rear window. Did, does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, I thought rear window was played up really heavily when it's like, well, this is really gaslight. You know, if, if you're going to have these really extreme sort of 
connections mm-hmm. why are you emphasize like that was someone that was emphasized and there are all these other films um because thriller was you know really big in a lot of these classics but yeah um i don't know i i've it's like ready player one um in that if you're a nerd and you get the reference but that's as far as ready player one went mm-hmm. it's just nerd fandom here you are if you re- if you ever watch brazil here's your thing it has nothing to do with the plot this one it's to me it's like it's sort of a wink wink to the audience if you have seen the film you know here's the second level which i'm fine with and if you don't get the second level it's still fine it's just a thing that i kind of gloss over i feel like second level stuff works better if you pick up on it because you're already there and not it's not obvious that to people at the first level that they're missing the second level does that make sense mm-hmm. so but i mean again like that it's i mean i i messaged my friend laurel who came to our last pop-in event who is a huge old movie buff and i was like you have to read this book because they as i was going through it i'm like laurel has all these movies i should make a list and then like ask her which movies you know she she appreciated or thought was a good connection because she would know more than i would know yeah and sometimes it felt like it's name dropping just a name drop Mm -hmm. yeah um, okay, so there's two big things in the book that I want to touch on before we transition to the movie, and I have mental health and privilege. So which one do you want to talk about first? Uh, let's talk about privilege. Okay. her house is damn extreme, and to be an agoraphobic, it, you have to have some source of income. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm going to read something again, and again, it's linked in our show notes on our website. But here we have this bo- brittle board gentifier, because they were in Harlem, okay, who wants to call 311 on a barking dog, who considers reporting the neighbors she barely knows the child protective services, and who barges into her tenant space without permission, and then tells everyone he's on parole. <laughs> like, she's just, she's, she's, I, yes, she has issues. She's got agoraphobic, and she's got trauma. Her family's dead. I'm totally not dismissing that, but she does have income. She does have a certain amount of uh, cachet. Let's just be really clear. She was having a mental breakdown on the ground outside after making 911 call and saying that somebody had been stabbed. When the police came, they carefully picked her up, took her to the hospital. She didn't get shot. You know, if Mm -hmm. if she had been a black woman, a black man, this book would have had a very different ending. It would have it would have ended. I, I just feel like, especially in New York, I just, you know what I mean? So I feel like it's not ever, ever actually acknowledged in this book at all. And maybe that's okay, but also maybe it's not. What do you think? Well, looking at like her tenant, David was given much more fair treatment in the book. You know, he has a past, he has some history, but he's never really that awful with her he doesn't have like the jump scares that he has in the movie Mm -hmm. you know stuff like that and he's rightfully pissed when she goes into his area because as a landlord you you can't do that unless you know you give 24 hour notice stuff like that but yeah there's uh the way she's dealt with by the police is very gently until you know we get a little bit later on and and uh one of the cops is a little bit more frustrated with her Uh, but even that frustration is all verbal you know, it's yeah. it's like there's nobody puts her in a chokehold. Nobody drags her. She's never handcuffed, you know, like. Uh, what I see with her is like she lives in this giant, this cavern. It's this huge mansion. And that comes across 
a lot more clearly in the movie when you just see the physical space of it all in an area where you know space is at a premium mm-hmm. and a bunch of the other brownstones had been chopped up into smaller apartments that's why she was able to watch multiple families and she even talks about in the book how much they all sell for like she's looking at the real estate you know there's a lot more internet sleuthing going on in the book for sure but like you know she's very aware of how much money everybody must have that she's kind of not obsessed with it but it's definitely on her radar what everybody does for a living who where, where their money comes from money yeah and that speaks to a certain level of classness mm-hmm. yeah so then we have mental health which i feel like is combined because we uh people with mental health issues <laughs> white people white rich people with mental health issues are treated very differently than their counterparts and her mental health issues are severe but I read this interesting thing on Medium about the stigma against the people with mental illnesses being violent and that this book and movie portrays that myth. When, however, the Health Canada Review found that the strongest predictor of violence and crime is a past history of violence and crime, not mental health. According to the Canadian Mental Health Association, mental illness doesn't play a part in most crimes committed. According to the American Psychological Association, researchers have found no link between mental illness and violence. Current research has found that people with mental illness, especially those who also deal with substance use and poverty, are over twice as likely to experience and be hurt by violence. According to the Association for Psychological Science, the reason why this myth about people who are mentally ill being violent persists is due in part to the availability heuristic in which media stories are sensationalized and made public, believe that the crimes are often more committed by people who are mentally ill. While people with psychopathy or sociopathy can be violent, they aren't necessarily violent. It's an easy answer, and that's why people like it. Yeah, it's comforting. It can't be... It can't be somebody normal doing terrible things. It and it, even just that phrase, somebody normal, that's an awful thing to say. Uh, we had this homeless encampment right next to where I lived, and as somebody who is not a therapist, who is not a psychologist, I would swear that one of the people who lived there was a woman who had schizophrenia. She would talk to herself. She had, you know, it was obvious that she had mental health issues, severe ones, and. She was living a hand-to-mouth experience on the side of a hill. That was her life. Mental health issues will usually just make you poor and make it hard for you to live in a society. It's not a violence thing. Mm-hmm. For sure. Like you said, it's, it's, a, it's a comforting thought because, oh, it's not me. It's not us. It's those people. And that's why. And now, done. I don't have to think about it anymore, which is... yeah. You'll see that a lot when uh, school shootings happen. Oh, well, this is why this person did the thing. They were bullied. Whatever reason, the reasons are usually quite complex, more than we have time to go here in this particular story. But the easy answer is not the answer. Yeah, exactly. It's never going to be video game violence. (laughs) Right. Or, you know, the satanic panic music of the 80s. For sure. So... But it, it, I, the book tried to deal with mental health issues. You know, definitely agoraphobia is a mental health issue. Speaking of this and her privilege, she has a psychologist coming to her house. Yeah. And a physical therapist coming to her house. That's pretty darn rare. Mm-hmm. That's, that's premium pricing. And just as a little fun note, the person who plays her psychiatrist in the movie is also one of the script writers. Yes, exactly. Which is awesome. 
cute little that's the bit of trivia that i liked to read there was a whole bunch of trivia that i made me angry but this little bit of trivia was fun are you ready to talk about the movie sure let's let's segue into the movie <laughs> the movie had quite a lot of drama and there's in the works right now is a movie based on this movie because drums yeah i'm sure there's going to be a movie based on the author too but Yes, this movie specifically, it was made in 2018. 20th Century Foxes was their last film before they were bought by Disney. Okay, so it was produced by 20th Century. The film was originally scheduled to be theatrically released in October of 2019, but it was delayed to May 2020 due to re-editing, the necessary re-editing after poor test screenings. Apparently, its original version was confusing to people. They didn't understand what was going on. So they decided to re-edit it and push it back, you know, until May 2020. Well, obviously, nothing got released in May 2020. The theatrical release was later canceled due to COVID. And then the rights were then sold to Netflix, which then released the film in May 2021. So it does make it more timely in a lot of ways that this was released during or towards the end of our, our COVID epidemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Tracy Letts, he was the screenwriter, the original one, and he said, well, it kind of sucked. He did not particularly like writing the screenplay for this. It was not an easy experience for him. And they did have to hire other screenwriters to come in and try to fix these these gaps in knowledge. And it comes off very clunky in the movie. You can kind of see, okay, they added that bit of exposition and it doesn't really fit well it's not sort of natural or intuitive yeah there was a lot of tonal shifts in the movie like there was like the cinematographies the 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 set is really cool it's really big like you said before it's very cavernous you get a sense of the space it's both claustrophobic and immense at the same time yeah and then there's like some rooms that are like painted kind of like pinky and then there's like blue and then the curtains like the light coming through the curtains completely changes the colors of the rooms so it's very interesting but then you have like these weird moments where it was like it was a different movie there's like wine and she puts paper down on a you know piece of paper from a book or whatever and it bleeds through like blood and then at some point like red blood splatters across the camera but not blood but like just red paint almost the droplets yeah. yeah but it's it's not like graphic like children of men blood on the camera it's like stylized and then it's gone in a second we have like this dripping faucet situation that is like supposed to be ratcheting up the tension, but doesn't because it's the only thing and it comes and then goes so fast. It's just like there are these elements that, but then there's just not enough of them that they, they needed to either get rid of them completely or, or put more in. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. less is more. And you could have made this much more scary if you had been more quiet and more intentional with it, or just go super into camp and like, have it be more schlocky, but it it's a weird medium place. So I can see where they were trying to do an homage to Hitchcock where, you know, she's framed in doorways. She's framed coming down the stairway. And that works if you're making this like a love letter to you know, the noir thrillers, that would be fine. And that would be keeping with the book. And then you have this thing where they're trying to show you what her psychological life is like. And so you have the faucet and okay, we're kind of getting that through Amy Adams, who did a very good job with what she had. 
Mm-hmm. You know, Steve's able to convey that. We don't need the faucet. Right. We don't need like the funky ass camera angles doing this and that. Or the car crashed through the doorway with the snow falling. Right. And, you know, and you're like, okay, that's okay. I thought there were some really cool style things going on, but yeah, it's like you're mixing all these different films and you're not getting this great thing coming out of it. You're getting this just weird, chunky. Right. And if there had been more of that, more of like the pictures on the walls or doorways being into other rooms, like layered in, then it would have been like a mind trippy and we would have been like more in her l- losing her sanity. Do you know what I mean? And like feeling that she was hallucinating because she's never hallucinating. I would love the idea that you're walking, like if you watch the film and like the water bottle is missing, something like that, Mm -hmm. you know, like maybe the picture isn't there where it was supposed to be and having really subtle details where you go and enough that the audience could catch it and go, wait, wait, did I see that thing? So you're part of the gaslighting. Right. Would have been a cool effect. You could have had a thing where the first couple of times it happens, the audience is like, ah, ha, ha, continuity error. And then you realize, oh, no, (laughs) like that's intentional. Like things are in the wrong place, you know, and then that would have built into this tension of her losing her mind. Because I have to tell you, I didn't really feel like she was losing her mind. She didn't seem like she was actually hallucinating in this movie at all, except for the audio hallucinations of her family, which okay, but she was doing that before they changed her meds. And that is a grief coping mechanism that isn't necessarily a mental health issue. Do you know what I mean? They also took out her friends. And if you don't have friends and you're by yourself, you do talk to Wilson. (laughs) You do make, you know, the the volleyball your friend after a while, because that's just humans. We have to have social interaction at some level. Mm -hmm. And so that would have made total sense and not be crazy. It's just, okay, she's got imaginary friends and she knows they're not real, but that's what you do because you're alone all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a thing because I'd read the book, I, I knew what was going to happen basically in the movie, except for a, a little quibble endings at the end. But when the original Jane shows up and then she leaves and then there's this question of, was there, was there ever a woman here? And did that actually happen in the book? You almost had it. You're like, well, did she imagine that whole thing? Like there's no egg residue outside. Like it's been so long now, like the wine glasses, you know, had she played chess? Like, did she move things? And there's all these questions. And when she finds this little picture that the original Jane had drawn, she feels, oh, okay. I I don't know how to draw. So like, this helps me. But in the movie, there was none of that. Like Jane was there, like stuff happened. And then Jane left. And, And the question of whether or not Jane had actually ever been there never really gets brought up or dealt with because we as the viewers saw Jane and buy into it 100%. So there was not really a question. Does that make sense? Yeah. If they took out some of, you know, we're going to be stylish and do this thing with the faucet and focused a little bit more on something like that, the plot would have made more sense. So it's style without really understanding how a plot works. Um, That comes through, especially with like uh, Ethan towards the end. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And again, Having read the book, knowing he's the bad guy, it totally clouds the way I saw him from the get-go. I was like, oh, he's creepy. When I'm like, well, is he? Or is that just because I know? I don't know. And it's impossible to know now. I can never- Well, everything was you know, set up as being creepy. Right. Like everything. Like that's what I mean. David had a much more fair treatment. It's like, he's just a, re- he's a guy who's trying to get his life back in order and is living in this person's basement. Mm-hmm. And then in the movie, it's just, I'm going to have a jump scare for funsies. Yeah, lots of them. And I felt like the reasons why the jump scares were there early was to like put us on edge. 
which can work sometimes because you're like you never know what exactly what's going to happen but i felt like it diminished i feel it also like, makes you kind of exhausted well and it makes you know okay so in this world in this movie there are going to be startling things it's much more startling if you're like lulled into a false sense of security and then bam do you know what i mean then that's like oh fuck you know but if but if you've already been startled a couple times your adrenaline's pumping and you're like ready to be startled again you're prepared for it i will say that the casting i thought was excellent for everybody except for alistair <laughs> I really didn't like. I didn't even recognize Gary Oldman at first. No. It's been so long since I've seen him in the film. It it has been a long. I did not recognize him either, and I didn't like his portrayal of Alistar at all. Like I just I I didn't find him all that scary. I didn't find him all that interesting. Like I just I don't know if it was the accent or like the way he carried himself or what, but I was just oh. I had well. more of an issue with Jennifer Jason Lee, and she's barely in it. Oh, I liked her. I thought she was. I fine. just felt like she was like a cardboard cutout that you would put in a scene, and she just kind of stand there and have her Jennifer Jason Lee look and say a thing. Okay, but see, I felt like that was intentional. First of all, I, and I now that I've read stuff, I know that she did have more scenes that they edited out. Okay, fine, but I feel like she was there, super stiff and weird, because we're getting it through Amy Adams's Doctor Anna's perspective, and she doesn't believe that Jennifer Jason Lee's Jane is real is a real person does that make sense she thinks that she's an actress or like something else or there's something sinister so that's one of the only times where i felt like we were seeing through her eyes not just what she was seeing that brings in a huge issue with how much of this are we seeing from anna's perspective and how much is reality that we're witnessing with her Mm -hmm. i don't think the film did a very good job of differentiating between those two things at all yeah and you were saying you know if if you're going to lean into camp lean into it you know i would rather have her be almost totally cardboard and have the something like that where you really are seeing things from her perspective and it's all wonky Mm -hmm. or make it real but you can't like fuddle around with these in-betweens it's shooting the audience yeah i did think it's funny that so jennifer jason lee was in bastard of carolina which we just did and Amy Adams was in Hillbilly Elegy, which we did a little while ago, too. So that was, that was kind of fun. Also, now that I've said those out loud, I get to put them in our show notes. But I'm Here's a change that they made in the movie that they didn't necessarily need to, but I liked. And that was the interracial marriage of Anna mm. and Edward. There's no races given in the book. It was just yeah, something that they added to the film. You know, and here's the thing. I'm a white person. And unfortunately, my default position is white. So when I read this, and it's a woman who's in her 40s, who's obviously rich and a doctor and blah, 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 and they never bother to tell us what her race is, I assume that she's white, which is a racist failing on my part. I'm owning that. Okay. That being said, the fact that they decided in the movie to be like, hey, we're going to give her an interracial marriage to make it feel a little bit more New York and to make it feel a little bit more realistic and of its time, I appreciated. I liked the fact that that was, that that was there. So I also like the fact that her husband is freaking the Falcon slash Captain America and her tenant is the bad Captain America, John Walker. <laughs> But they're never on screen together. Obviously, this movie way predates the Winter Soldier or Falcon and Winter Soldier and, you know, U.S. agent and all that kind of stuff. But that was that was highly fun for me. (laughs) There's your your geek trivia right there. I did think that the 
that so in the book the reason like the thing that gets her to be like oh my god is that the cat was injured and ethan knew about it and that line was a really good way to end the chapter that's why i read it in my recap if you're one of those people that skips the recap go back and listen it's worth it but in the movie like the cat is just in david's area which may or may not even be a thing because she's given david permission to come back and forth and then the way that we know that Ethan is suddenly there is that he sneezes, which is, you know, they laid in that he was allergic, but he didn't sneeze the first time, just the second time. And like to be outed as a bad guy by a sneeze, it just, I don't know, man, it could have been so startling, but it just wasn't. It, it, that, that little reveal that Ethan is behind her was not scary and again, maybe it's because I already Nick knew that it was going to be Ethan and he was going to startle her at some point. Or maybe it's because we already had so many startles by that point. I don't know. But I really liked the the startle factor of Ethan in the book way better than in the movie. Well, the way he plays her in the book is so chilling and manipulative and smart. Mm-hmm. You know, he pretends to be this Montana grandmother. And even when he, he slips and goes, oh, you know, BTW, she just goes, oh, well, the grandmother's learning, you know, internet stuff. Right. And I didn't put that in the recap, but in the book, she, because of her Agora online community, she's helping this little grandma in Montana with her, you know, thing. And it turns out that that was Ethan who then managed to figure out her passwords and like also figured out her, you know, a bunch of stuff about her personal life because he was basically catfishing her online, which they totally removed in the movie. Which So they because they removed that in the movie, they didn't have the thing where she was trying to unlock her phone to make a phone call and she couldn't unlock her own phone, which is terrifying. (laughs) Again, speaking of personal Kalia triggers, I (laughs) trying to call 911 and not being able to get my passcode in properly to get my phone open, A, has happened to me and B, is a recurring nightmare. It is because you're so shaky and you can't like, I love the fact that now it's a freaking thumbprint. Like, and I can unlock my phone with my thumb because- Holy smokes, it is no it is no joke to be trying to call for help and not be able to slide your finger or like not to be able to answer the phone because there's like moisture on your fingertip. And so it's just sliding. Oh my God, I just, I can't. <clears throat> Anyways, in the book, yes, he changes her passwords and her phone she can't use. And then, and then it's back again later, which is fine. And in the movie, that doesn't happen because he's not catfishing Yeah, her. he's just, you know, magical movie hacking ability. Well, you know, well, there's no hacking. He just sends her an email from a Gmail account that's not in the book. They go to the point to show her that she that, that picture's on her camera and she sent that to herself. In the movie, they're like, you might have sent it to yourself. And then they just drop it. They never really revisit it. But in the book, it's a lot more laid in. She's like, how would I do that? And then she finds the picture like on her camera roll. So then it's even more like, oh God, I am doing this to myself. I can't trust my own memories because I don't remember taking this picture. You know, that kind of stuff. Again, the book had a much better lead in and build up of tension and her psychological failings and her mental health issues than the movie did, which is disappointing. Yeah, they tried to rely more on style to convey that and it, doesn't work because they didn't stick to one style well enough exactly a couple other big changes in the book she has sex with david in her daughter's bedroom doesn't happen in the movie i was okay with them leaving that out because it, it was a weird little vignette i think it was there to show us like you know again she's like losing touch and she's making bad choices and she doesn't have impulse control and all of those things so whatever 
thankfully we didn't have to watch the family die in as prolonged a way in the movie as we did in the book they just like basically said that it happened and we had a couple seconds of like flashes and then it was over which was really good because I was like mentally preparing to hide under my desk during that scene in the book she actually leaves her house to follow quote-unquote Jane to a coffee shop at one point which was really interesting because I feel like it almost undermined her agoraphobia because she was able to leave multiple times I mean it was difficult for her but she was able to do it when nobody was like actually in physical danger she was just motivated enough so it almost undermined her psychological issue which maybe was the point I don't know but they definitely chose to leave that out of the movie they did add in in the movie her suicide video and they added in that David tells her part of the quote-unquote truth yeah that's one of those clumsy oh this is probably reshot exposition yeah definitely it definitely felt like that and then also david dies (laughs) he gets stabbed and then he's not dead but then he tries to help her by grabbing ethan's foot and then ethan turns around and really goes at him with the the knife or the letter opener whatever it was yeah the movie was much more graphic and there were moments where i was like oh god this is this is why i don't like a slasher film Dude, when he fucking hit her in the face. The rake Okay, I I paused. And you can see it through her mouth. Dude, okay. It is amazing that she survived. Uh, A, that she didn't lose an eye. And B, because when she's in the hospital on the bandage, there's like a big ass hole on her neck. And I'm like, that is so close to her rotted artery right there. Like, are you kidding me? Like, how do you survive a fucking trowel rake? claw thing to the face slash neck and are okay with it oh oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god yeah super super graphic they decided to really ratchet that up at the end and you lose so much character yeah in the book it was about her kind of tricking this boy and then she gives him a hug and then pushes him into the skylight and so there's so much more complexity with something like that again because she wanted to help and so she plays on that she's like i just want to help you you know blah da 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 da. like i forgive you you know like ah, i love you know like all of these things like the things that he needed to hear because he was damaged and then she kills him and so it's Mm -hmm. like more complicated the death it's not this like long chase scene violent yeah he's not a cartoon villain he's a villain but without the cartooniness of yeah well i'm just a psychopath ha 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 yeah ethan was a lot scarier and and more tragic in the book and so was she what way more tragic in the book so you want to talk about the talented mr mallory okay let's talk about this author okay so aj finn his real name is dan mallory that is not the big huge thing he's got a series of lies that the new yorker went through in detail about yes And that expose will be linked in our show notes on our blog. Yeah. So he claimed um, his mother died of cancer. His brother suicided. Neither one of those is true. Um, Although his mother did have cancer, she's, she recovered and she's fine. Yeah. He also talked about how he had cancer and he had to have surgery. He had a brain tumor. There's like this, I mean, it's so expansive. He wrote letters from the point like he pretended to be his brother talking about himself to co-workers and like everybody knew and more than just like these these big things there's like tons of little lies yeah like he pretended to be british right well and then like he he said he got a job 
he got a doctorate from Oxford, which he didn't, he, you know, he's, he said he worked somewhere that he didn't like lots and lots of stuff. And like, he's, a, he's like, you can see a lot of fun at parties talks, like just basically pathological. It feels to me after reading these articles that he's a pathological liar. He just makes shit up on the fly to sound good and impress whoever he happens to be in front of without thinking it through, right? It seems like a lack of impulse control. Armchair psychology over here. This is fun though. So then he worked in the publishing world, right? He's an editor. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when he writes this book, totally capitalizing on the whole women on the train girl on the window whatever like all those other books right there's like female unreliable narrative protagonist who drinks too much and crime thriller and so he's definitely like trying to like get in on that action which he does quite well obviously um but he writes it under a pseudonym and so in the publishing world when there's a book like this the the publishing houses will uh, auction it off who gets to have the rights and then sell it and make all the money and stuff right so the auction is happening and, you know, a bunch of publishing houses are trying to get the rights to this book. And then once it got to a certain amount of money, like a significant amount of money. It was a million, wasn't it, that he sold it for? No, no. Once it got to okay. $750,000, he allowed everyone to know that it was him, that he that it was just his pseudonym and his book. And a bunch of publishing houses backed out of the auction. They're like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> we don't want to have anything to do with that guy. And then the publishing house that he actually works for is the one that optioned it for a million with another million dollars for his second book, which was supposed to come out in 2021, as of yet has not come out. So we, we shall see if that if another book comes. Okay. And then, okay. Okay. So two more little interesting facts about this guy. One, have you ever heard of the movie Copycat? Yes. Okay, it's a thriller movie, came out in the 80s. Sigourney Weaver, an American woman, mid-career psychologist with a PhD in professional experience in psychopathy is trapped in her large house by a She's been there for about a year after a personal trauma. She tries to go outside, the world spins. She drinks too much and recklessly combines alcohol and anti-anxiety medication. Police officers distrust her judgment. Online, she plays chess and contributes to a forum for stress sufferers, a place where danger lies. And she is then stalked and like harassed by a copycat killer and has to like, okay, whatever. Um, a lot of people were like, yo, this book is a lot like that movie. And he's, Malroy was like, no, no, not at all. Okay. So, and then this is the thing that just, okay. He's an editor. He has a client, the gal who is doing all the new Agatha Christie books, right? She's gotten permission. So she's continuing to write Agatha Christie novels. She's writing like a Perot novel and she, and he's her editor. And she literally writes a Perot novel about a literary editor who lies all the time and has a pretend brother with a surgery and a suicide like you can't even make it up right but but she also says oh no Mallory's great blah 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 I won't say shit about him but she's like totally mining his real life crazy pants shenanigans for crime thriller novel oh my god it is so freaking meta like that's the movie you know you're gonna watch it and then after the New York Times expose thing came out and it is long you guys it is a long laundry list of lies Valerie comes out and he's like, my next book is going to be about a reporter who challenges <laughs> the validity of a crime writer and then, you know, is like in danger. Which I don't know if that's just like 
funny or like really creepy or both. So, okay. Whew. Um, my last little bit of trivia about this is that it was produced by Scott Rudin, who you may or may not recognize because the name he's very prolific, has won lots of Oscars and awards and is very involved in Hollywood and has recently come under a lot of microscopic attention about the, the tales of abuse that people have suffered at his hands, violent temper, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, one of his um, assistants had to go to the ER after he, I think he slammed a laptop on her hand. Yeah. So I am really glad that I got this book used for a dollar at Goodwill. And I'm really glad that I watched it on Netflix because I don't think I would want to put any more money into either of these men's pockets or hands or whatever's so uh tracy Letts was very diplomatic he was just like oh he's just a very passionate person this director i mm -hmm. i i like passion it's like the guy's insane he he throws laptops everywhere i'm like you can't find something cheaper to throw than a laptop well but yeah yeah there we are there is supposedly in the works a film based on the background of this film you know what's going on with mallory and the director uh jake gyllenhaal has been tagged as somebody who's going to be in it and the background of this is sometimes funnier than what actually happens okay that's funny the jake gyllenhaal thing is funny because one of the articles i read was a new zealand i'll link it a new zealand article before the big new york times expose this New Zealand, it was like on a press junket and this guy visits Mallory in his house and they talk about French bulldogs and they talk about these things. And he says, oh, you know, you kind of look like Jake, Gyll you kind of look like Gyllenhaal. You're like really good looking. And he was like, oh, Maggie or Jake. And he, you know, and you read this profile and you're like, oh, this guy is really self-deprecating and really cool and nice. And like, you read this whole thing and you're just like, he's a cool guy. And then you read like the expose later and it's like fake, 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 manipulates people. And I'm like, dude, he's like a fucking sociopath because the, once you know that and you go back and you read the New Zealand thing, you can tell that he's picked up on stuff that the interviewer has said and then like run with it about like, like he lets the interviewer name his future bulldog and like talk about, oh, you know, I like that name, Rob and like all of this stuff and you're like dude oh my god so yeah the ironic much that Hall has been happy. there's also that thing where supposedly his phd is based on patricia highsmith who wrote the talented mr ripley yes which is all about someone assuming somebody else's identity <laughs> and he had written about it like supposedly about like the gay undercurrent because this author's gay it wasn't relevant to the conversation so i didn't bring it up but he's gay but like he never actually wrote this dissertation so no but I know it's just like layer upon layer upon layer it's it's stuff that you wouldn't believe if it came out in a movie plot yeah yeah it just it feels like a lot of trolling I just it's so much <laughs> so much is the book worth your time Okay. For Kalia, yes, yeah. because for thriller, it hit everything. It, it did. I would say, Kalia. I mean, it was enjoyable-ish. It was fun. Okay. Now that you know how it ends, I don't know if you ever want to, I don't think I could reread it. What's the point? But the book was, like, it was, a, it was, it was fun. <laughs> 
it's fine. I if you're into thrillers, thrillers, it hits all the things. And if you've listened to this podcast, I hope you'd already read it. (laughs) Spoilers. Yeah, it was it was a thriller. It was a very and and now I can say I've read no multiple thrillers. This one worked better for me than the other one that I had read for my reviewing purposes. I definitely like it better than like Woman on the Train or Gone Girl. For me, it's just because the character, your main character, is much more likable. Yes, and yes, that that is true. Um, Anna is Doctor Anna is much more likable and approachable than I can't even remember the main characters' names in either of those two. But yes, I will say Gone Girl. I like that it did kind of flip it a little bit. That was you know that was it was, but that's a different podcast. Anyways, so yeah, the book if you're into thrillers or in crime, whatever's and stuff cool totally totally read it if it's not your genre it's still kind of a fun read yeah and And it's 400 pages but the chapters are insanely short and it's written in a very staccato style you know there's like 100 chapters like literally yeah and a lot of them um, are prefaced with a whole page that just says monday or tuesday or whatever so it's not nearly as long as it as it is i mean there's not nearly as many words as you'd expect for a 400 page Whatever. Here, here, I'm going to read you chapter 47. Are you ready? I've avoided the kitchen since yesterday, avoided the first floor altogether. Now, though, I'm once more at the window, staring down the house across the park. I pour a ribbon of wine into a glass. I know what I saw. Bleeding, pleading. This isn't nearly over. I drink. That's the extent of chapter 47. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it does, it looks like it's going to be longer than it is. And again, the staccato writing, which it was padded, it was padded, a lot of padding. Mm, yeah. yeah. So, again, fine. So, what about you, Jennifer? Was this book worth your time? It was okay. As I said, like, I, Compared to the other two books in the genre that I have read, I liked this character more. And kind of the point of this sort of genre is that you have a character that maybe isn't likable or has a lot of issues, but you're interested in their story enough to keep going with it. And so I liked her as a character. I thought she had her moments of being fun. You can see her tragedy as a reread, since I, I read a lot, sometimes I have to reread things just because, you know, I get mixed up with other stuff. So it was okay as a reread. Hmm. I, I knew that like her husband and daughter were dead, but there's like little things that you pick up on maybe that you didn't on the first time because there is like the whole gaslighting bit and you can go back and go, oh, wait, was that the thing that happened? Because now we have the print that we can go back and check it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the movie, don't waste your time. Yep. Agreed. I, I was going to say, oh, you know, Saturday afternoon, if nothing else to do. But no, actually, there's other things to do. There's other books to read and other movies to watch. I, It's super not worth your time, which is disappointing because it's got a good cast. And mm-hmm. it's based on something that was at least interesting, if nothing else. But it was made badly. It was just made badly. Yeah. <laughs> I have nothing else to say. <laughs> yeah, it's it was... And, and you get, again, you can see the tragedy of it. You have a great cast. The screenplay wasn't that great to begin with. Um, you know, Leaks didn't really know what he was doing when he was adapting the screenplay. I think Quint Reznor, who just won an Oscar for Soul, he was originally part of um, the soundtrack team. And then they quit when there was a bunch of re-editings and reshoots. And it's just a mess. It was a hot mess. I liked Soul. Go watch Soul. Soul's a better movie. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I guess the big life lesson here is if you're going to spy on your neighbors, take pictures. 
<laughs> yeah, sounds the lesson to take away from this one. <laughs> so the police will believe you. <laughs> yes. Oh, and uh, be more careful about your passwords. Don't just use birthdays and stuff. Yeah, that's that's another good lesson from this book. Uh, the lesson from the movie is uh, maybe quit while you're ahead. <laughs> Although I'm very curious to see the unedited, unredone version and wonder if it's actually confusing. Because sometimes people say things are confusing just because they can't follow stuff. It's hard because we, we know the story. Yeah, and that's so true. It, it's that's true too. That's part of the problem. And I think that's an issue with adaptation is what do you need to give across this thing when you already know so much of the story? Well, and then like who the who's the audience? Is the audience people who've already read the book because then you have to do something at least a little bit different to keep them interested or is the audience just you know people who haven't read the book in which case you don't have to really worry about it if you have read the book the change of just making the kid a psycho is a letdown yeah yeah it's just a letdown no matter what anyways okay well jennifer this was super fun thank you (laughs) all right take care everyone stay safe get vaccinated and then you can go outside Oh, Jennifer, does that mean we should do a girl on the train or gone girl at some point? I've read both of them. It was a long time ago, but I have not seen either of the movies. So that would be, they would be new to me. If we must, but you have to be a sponsor in order to request this. (laughs) And it looks like the upload is almost complete. Yeah, there it is. Cool. So all is done on my side. Pop to it, producer. (laughs) 